The reading is taken from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. <coughs> and this can be found on page 1128. So it's Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, and in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received themselves the true penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, all of us, whoever we are, are interested in people. We're born nosy. And if we study nothing else, the one thing we really like to study is human nature. I don't mean in any kind of academic sense of studying psychology and all that sort of stuff. Uh, no, no abstract sense. Um, we like real concrete examples, don't we? I mean, what do you do if you arrange to meet somebody in the pub and you arrive early and uh, you've got to wait for them? Well, you get your drink, you might get some crisps and you sit in the corner and you watch. And uh, you can work out quite a lot by watching, can't you? But unless, of course, you go and ask the person, you can't check if you are right, but I reckon you probably can discern quite a lot of things. Similarly, if you're in an airport departure lounge and you're flying away on business and you're there early, you do the same thing. You sit and people watch. It's a bit more international and uh, you might not be quite so accurate in your discernment, but it's fascinating and we love doing it. But are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to human nature? 
When it comes to human nature, some people are optimists and they're constantly surprised when somebody lets them down or does the dirty on them or runs off with their best mate's wife. And yet, whilst some of us have a too rosier picture of human nature, others of us are unduly pessimistic. We think that some people are just beyond the pale, really. That uh, they're just so unlikely to be remotely interested in the faith that we hold dear, that we're aware changes lives, that we know is true that they're just not going to give it a moment's thought. Now which are you, the optimist or the pessimist? Which is it, surprised when people uh, fall or surprised when they show interest in the great converter, transformer of men and women? Well, whichever it is, it lacks the realism of the Bible. The Bible is a great textbook of human nature, which isn't surprising given that its author is our creator. He knows exactly how we're wired up. So let's have a turn to Romans 1, page 1128, and we'll get to understand human nature a little bit better. And first of all, we uh, see, follow the outline, that everybody knows there's a God and God has made it plain to them through creation. That's the first thing, and it may come as a surprise to you if you happen to be pessimistic, that Mr. Average does know that there's a God. That's what Paul writes in verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself has made it plain. Well, how has he made it plain, we might ask. And Paul gives two ways how God has made his existence plain to everyone. They are through creation and through conscience. Creation, verse 20, and conscience in 32, and then 2.15. So creation, ever since God created the world, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. They are perceived in the things God has made. David Pawson, in his helpful first book, I think, um, called Truth to Tell, written in the 1970s, shares this illuminating illustration. There were four men wandering through the Sahara Desert. In the distance, they see this beautiful palace, and each of the four of them offers an explanation as to how it has come to be there. The first says, it isn't there. It's a mirage. Can you not see? It's all kind of, you know, floating on the horizon there. The second says, it's always been there. It's as old as the desert itself. And the third, thinking that was unlikely, said, look, what's happened is that by a remarkable process of chance, the wind and the rain have blown together and washed together all the grains of sands over millions of years and fashioned them into this beautiful palace. The fourth member of the party simply said, well, actually, I know the architect who built it. Which do you consider to be the most plausible? They are, by the way, the four explanations on offer for the creation of the universe. The first is to say it's an illusion. That is what Buddhism would tend to say. It's a figment of our imagination. 
Others will state that the universe has always been there, although the prevailing scientific consensus is that you can trace its origins back to an initial explosion about 14 billion years ago, plus or minus a billion, and that that brought it into existence and it's been propelled into existence ever since. The third view is that there was once nothing and that uh, nothing, by a remarkable process of chance, has become something. Uh, do you think that's got any mileage? I mean, do you know of anything where nothing becomes something? You'd make a fortune if you could. And then, of course, there is what is perhaps the most reasonable explanation, that someone or something greater than the universe created it. And that's so obvious, the Apostle Paul says, everyone knows it. Charles Darwin, the impossibility of conceiving that this grand and wondrous universe with our conscious selves arose through chance seems to me the chief argument for the existence of God. But he adds, but whether this is an argument of real value, I have never been able to decide. Francis Collins, who headed up the, the Genome Project in the States, says, I believe God did intend in giving us intelligence to give us the opportunity to investigate and appreciate the wonders of his creation. He is not threatened by our scientific adventures. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in both the cathedral and the laboratory. Professor Sir John Polkinghorn, uh, once a professor of physics at Cambridge, writes, Science and religion are friends, not foes, in the common quest for knowledge. Some people may find this surprising, for there's a feeling throughout our society that religious belief is outmoded or downright impossible in a scientific age. I don't agree. In fact, I go so far as to say that if people in this so-called scientific age knew a bit more about science than many of them actually do, they'd find it easier to share my views. He says, when you realise the laws of nature must be incredibly fine-tuned to produce the universe we see, that conspires to plant the idea that the universe did not just happen, but there must be a purpose behind it. Or John Lennox. Relatively, there are many scientists who believe in God, and in Oxford, where I'm a professor, there are more professors like me who believe in God than you think. And in Cambridge too, and elsewhere. We are not a tiny minority. So God reveals himself through creation, but there is also evidence in our conscience. God has made it plain through our conscience. Verse 32, they know that God's law says that people who live in this way deserve death. And Paul is writing about the Gentile world, the vast majority of whom had not had access to the Christian scriptures. They know through conscience. Or in 2.15, Paul says human beings made in the image of God, although fallen, still have an inbuilt sense of right and wrong. Others have uh, said there is a, a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, often created by the burden of struggling to live with a guilty conscience. Augustine, who knew that better than most from personal experience, wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest 
in you. C.S. Lewis takes a more philosophical approach, but ends up in much the same place, writing, I think, in Mere, Christian, Mere Christianity, page 45, if you want to know, that uh, he's writing, he says, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? But why, if we all know that there's a creator, and we know in our consciences that there are certain things which are right and certain things are wrong, why are there not more followers of God? And Paul gives his answer uh, in this letter, which if you're an atheist, you may find hard to take. The answer Paul gives in verse 18 is that human beings suppress the truth by their wickedness. In other words, we know what truth is, but we try and hide the evidence from ourselves. We tend to try and silence that voice that tells us otherwise. Why? So we can do wicked things, it says. And this is how it works. Tell me if I'm wrong. What happens if you do something that you know to be wrong? Well, you have a guilty conscience. Now that's unpleasant, having a guilty conscience. That's a kind of burden to have to kind of bear. And so if you want to relieve yourself of that, you've got two choices. One is to stop doing what you've been doing and try and re... And the other one is to try and uh, re-educate or reprogram your conscience. You tell yourself that what you've been doing wrong is in fact okay. You try, in other words, to justify yourself. And if you're successful, your conscience will become dull. It will become more silent. And you will more easily get away with what you are doing wrong, so that it becomes almost a second nature to you. Isn't that how it works? I remember once when I was in hospital management and uh, apparently that day one of the porters had phoned in sick, nothing unusual in that except for him unfortunately the senior nursing officer saw him working in a nursing home when she visited her mother and she told me and I quizzed him as to why he'd done that and he tried to justify it by arguing that he hadn't been paid enough being a porter, it was alright to have a sickie, everybody does it and to supplement his pay packet in some other way. We didn't retain his services. Or I think of a fellow Christian minister with whom I was in a fellowship group with for about 15 years. We met for a whole day about every three months and we discussed things together. I remember him actually tabling a paper in which he'd written about divorce and remarriage and how that would be practically applied and worked out pastorally in uh, his church. He took the view of the reformers, as we do, that it's wrong to commit adultery, but that the innocent party to adultery or desertion is free in good conscience to remarry. And yet somehow he managed to justify to himself that he could, and still profess to be a Christian, 
leave his wife and three kids and go off with a young man. Now Paul is not being illiberal in saying that we suppress the truth, is he? But that's exactly what we do. Dulling the conscience is the first step down a degenerative slope. Thoughts and actions are always linked. Belief and behaviour are inseparable. What we do affects our thinking, and our thinking becomes futile and adversely affects our behaviour. The desire to do wrong causes the truth to be suppressed, and with the truth suppressed, we live in a desensitised world with all sorts of nonsense taking place. So we see the outcome of that here in that human beings exchange something wise for something foolish, verse 22. And then these exchanges are list, listed. The immortal God we exchange for earthly images. The truth of God for a lie. Natural relations for unnatural ones. The immortal God for earthly images. In the past, it would have been golden calves in the days of uh, Moses. In Paul's day, it would be some pretty fine bits of sculpture, but turning human beings into kind of gods. Now, we think we're more sophisticated, but we have our idols, don't we? We can make anything our idol. We can make our homes, our gardens, our careers, our cars, our children, our holidays, our hobbies. Idols can be anything that take the place of God. But whether it's in crude form or whether it's in a more cultural expression, either way, we have confused the creator with his creation. Put him first, and most of these other things are okay. Leave him out and it shows us how warped we've become. Our thinking and priorities around are, are, are around the wrong way. Next, we see that it exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I think you might need to turn it off because I can't concentrate hearing myself echo. But, uh. Oh, have you? Right. Is the other one not working? Okay, right. Well, we'll just do the best we can. Right, so we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And there are echoes there, aren't there, of Genesis chapter 3, where the devil lies to Adam and Eve, and they swallow that lie. They eat the fruit, and they've become like God, we're told. But they already were like God. They were already made in his image, and they possessed immortality. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they became a marred image of God, a distortion of what God intended, and they died. It affected not only their relationship with God, but with each other. And then we read in 26-27 that they exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Now that's not what we subjectively feel is natural, but what is objectively according to nature. So God has set nature up in a particular way, the way he intends things to be, 
And because subsequent to Adam we have all fallen, our desires have become distorted too, and we desire wrong things, not the things we were necessarily created to desire. The marriage relationship between a man and a woman is according to nature in obvious anatomical and reproductive senses. Being different but of equal status, the marriage relationship gives us an insight into the relationship of the father and the son, equal in status but with complementary functions, and also an insight into the relationship between Christ and the Christian. So then, how does God respond when his intentions of his original creation have gone so far adrift? What does he do about it? Well, his proximate response, what he does immediately and is doing now, is we're told he gave them over. And it mentions three times that he gave them over. Verse 24, therefore, to sexual impurity. 26, because of this, shameful lust. 28, since a depraved mind and behavior. Now, that may sound a rather feeble response, but it is really quite terrible. What happens if you leave a little child to do what it wants? Leave it to do what it thinks best, and what happens? It gets itself into trouble. It hurts itself. That's how God has left us for the time being. He doesn't force us to see things his way. He doesn't force us to give him his rightful place in our lives. He doesn't force us to love him. He doesn't force us to give him the honor that he deserves. He gives us our desire. He says, okay, you do what you want to do. You do things your way, and you will find out where living without me gets you. And we read, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then there is a long list that should remind us that we have all sinned in one way or another. However, here, sexual anarchy is particularly flagged up. It was rife then, it's rife now, and we need to give it particular consideration, especially as it is the presenting issue of the day. Back in the uh, mid-1980s, an Oxford consultant wrote, as a child, I was taught homosexuality was a sin. When I became a medical student, it was a perversion. When I became a junior doctor, it was a deviation. By the time I was appointed a consultant, it had become a variation. Nowadays, it's an alternative lifestyle. And by the time I retire, and he probably has by now, it will have become compulsory. And in a sense, that's what you feel in our society. It is there in your face all the time. You just watched Holby City this week, for example. There you will see it visibly expressed. There is not a single character 
in that show that is in a monogamous heterosexual marriage. It reflects what people are up to today. And then, of course, the sort of few minutes that I have available, one's not able to sort of cover this uh, particular issue thoroughly. And that's why I've listed a whole number of resources, some of them to, uh, to, to examine what the Bible says, others of them to kind of respond positively, some to look at what the kind of... Uh, um, the current state of science happens to be. There's a whole number of different, some where Christians give testimony to how they live with the same-sex attraction. Um, others, how we might uh, pastorally help such people. So there's a whole load of stuff. I commend those books and websites to you. But why is Paul so hot on sexual fidelity in monogamous heterosexual marriage? Well, the short answer is that the Apostle Paul is a Christian. And as a Christian, he follows the teaching of his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It is through heterosexual marriage that the highest degree of social intimacy can be expressed physically. And for that to work, there needs to be fidelity. That relationship is reproductive, and a permanent faithful relationship is not only the best context for bringing up children, but as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, it is a relationship that gives us insight into the relationship of the Godhead and also between Christ ourselves. And so, God, at the beginning of time, gave his blueprint, his definition for marriage, Genesis 2:24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And Jesus, interestingly and unusually, is recorded as um, endorsing that by quoting that verse in Matthew, Mark and Luke, sometimes more than once. It's a verse which rules out every form of sexual expression outside of monogamous, heterosexual, permanent marriage, whether it takes place prior to marriage or outside of marriage, whether with somebody of the opposite sex or of the same sex. It is a man and his wife. Attempts are made, of course, first of all, if you want to kind of uh, try and uh, deconstruct or rubbish um, Christ's view by saying, well, the Apostle Paul here has in mind pederasty, which is where an older male really seduces a sort of 12, 13-year-old boy, or that it's cultic homosexual prostitution. Well, there are explicit words for that, which Paul would have been aware of, but which he doesn't use. He uses a term which covers all kinds of uh, homosexual activity. And in fact, that he includes lesbianism here in his prohibition means that he has all same-sex expression in mind. But Paul, though, is a very keen advocate of friendship and brotherly love. Chapter 16, he's got bucket loads of people that he mentions, which would indicate to him that such relationships are very important and vital, yet they're not to have sexual expression. And it's widely accepted, even by those in same-sex relationships themselves, that in fact the Bible does limit sexual expression to monogamous heterosexual marriage. They just simply disagree with the Bible. One such, and I have a certain amount of respect for him, because he seems to be behaving honestly, 
And Dermot McCulloch is the Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Oxford, and you may have seen him, he does a number of uh, programs on the, on the telly. In 1987, he was due to be ordained a presbyter in the Church of England, but that summer, um, the resolution was passed in the General Synod that stated that same-sex expression fell short of God's intention and should be met with repentance. Now, he couldn't agree with that, nor could he live with that, and so he did not pursue ordination in the Church of England. That's an honest position to take. He now says, I would describe myself as a candid friend of Christianity. But why not let him do what he thinks he'd like to do? Well, of course, he can. It's not illegal. However, it is hard, and I think he reflects that in his comments, that given Christ's limits on sexual expression, to think that a follower of Christ could live at variance with Christ would be inconsistent and disobedient. And when you factor in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, where Paul is talking about a number of different persistent lifestyles at variance with how God intends us to live, uh, and he mentions that following that path means exclusion from the kingdom of God, you realize why it is a first order issue, because it affects our salvation. So, if it were ever to become the official position of the Church of England, then the church would divide. It would be a difficult time, and no doubt it would be particularly difficult for those who are faithful to Christ's teaching, but ultimately God would bless them, and the others would wilt. I'm not being prophetic. You've only got to look across the Atlantic because they've gone through it all over the last 25 years. It is a well-trodden path. But whenever something which doesn't apply to us is condemned, there is always the danger of becoming self-righteous. So let's take a moment to examine ourselves and consider these other sins listed in the same passage from verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love and no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, it's not one-offs that he's thinking of. He is thinking of which are one-off sins that are met with uh, heartfelt repentance and true faith, as the prayer book says. But persistent and defiant lifestyles in disobedience to God's desire for us, that's what is met with condemnation, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And God's ultimate response is that he is a God of wrath. The wrath of God, verse 18, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And verse 27, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So he's saying that God is then, and presumably now, actively engaged in judgment against our society. Now in the past, occasionally in the Old Testament, he'd chuck out the odd thunderbolt as a kind of warning that you know, we're to take him seriously. That's not how he acts today. He acts partly through the fact that um, he institutes governments to administer justice, but he also acts through the normal kind of cause and effect of life. You know, if we're designed to function one way and we start functioning in other ways, there will be adverse consequences. It's just built into nature. And that is what, in fact, happens. But more important, as we will see next time, God will intervene. Um, 2.16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So we can summarize the situation like this, and we can actually take away something positive. The summary is that Paul affirms what we instinct, that we instinctively know the truth, uh, but we suppress it. It's so we can do what we like. And we know that that puts us at variance with God. Our consciences condemn us. We disregard this knowledge and we continue to do what we like and we encourage others to do so. There is a clear antithesis between what people know and what they do. And God's wrath is especially expressed against those who deliberately suppress the truth for the sake of their own wrong desires. But it is encouraging in the sense that uh, we possess here the divine diagnosis of the default human condition, which is known even to those who suppress it. Everyone is wired up the same way. And with that knowledge, we can confidently, but humbly and graciously, talk into the lives of those who are around us. You see, more folk than we probably could ever imagine know that they're in a real mess doing their own thing and they long to get out of it. They just need help in doing so. And you, you're a Christian, by your example and with your knowledge of the gospel can graciously help them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this understanding of human nature which we know tallies with our experience and our observation. And we pray that um, in the time that's uh, left to us here on earth that we might uh, use that knowledge to help others escape from the mess that they have got themselves into in whatever way it is. And may at the same time we avoid the sin of self-righteousness 
to recognize that uh, we all have sinned in one way or the other. We are all tempted and we do still all fall from time to time. We thank you that you have shown a way out. You provided for the death of the Lord Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to be able to offer us forgiveness and amendment of ways. And we pray that we might do that so that we have integrity in sharing with others to help them follow in that path of salvation. Amen.